Dear Lord, thank you so much for another time we can study your word. I pray that you will fill our minds with a deeper understanding and appreciation for Jesus. Fill our auditorium with the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Voice activation is everywhere. Hey, Siri, call my son. Calling I'm going to turn it off. Um, there's Amazon's Alexa, Alexa, Microsoft's Cortana, Google Assistant, all voice activated. But this voice activation is not new. Everything in the world, everything in the universe, God made voice activated. Um, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Why? Ecclesiastes 8.4 Where the word, say it with me, where the word of a king is, there is power. God's voice activates all of creation. In Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so on through all the days of creation, as each part was created, God spoke. God's word brought order from chaos, beauty from ugliness. The dirt became man, and a rib became woman. By God's word, the ordinary became extraordinary. And that's what God wants to do in our lives with his word. Our study this week has taken us to the outskirts of Jerusalem. In our first study, we saw Martha opening her home to Jesus. If you didn't get the handout for the first uh, lecture, we have one here. Make sure you pick it up at the end. Um, Martha is so much like us. Although she welcomed Jesus to her house, the first time he w visited, she worried about what she had to offer Jesus instead of appreciating what he had to offer her. She became overwhelmed, irritated, impatient. She began to feel that the little she had to offer Christ was more important than the much he had to offer her. And we learn from Martha that it's not enough to invite Jesus into our home. The purpose of his visit is companionship with us. He doesn't come for us to wait on him. He comes to wait on us. He doesn't come to add to our burdens. He comes to take our burdens. Martha lost the companionship of Jesus when she neglected to cast her burden on the Lord who cared for her. And then he and his disciples just became one more burden. Have you ever seen people who are burdened down with all the things they have to do for the church or for Jesus or for... Um, that's losing the companionship of Jesus. Without realizing it, what was the testimony that Martha gave the world about inviting Jesus into the home? He's a burden. He takes up too much of my time. He absorbs others' attention so they don't help me and they become useless. With Jesus here, nobody does their work. Caring for him is a burden. Living the Christian life is hard. Whenever we complain, that's really what we're saying. Martha serves as a warning how easily we can complain even when Jesus is present. On Monday, we saw how God's word can change us as we sit at the feet of Jesus. Morning by morning. And this alone prepares us for the day. Power to change lives come from sitting at the feet of Jesus. Yesterday, we, look at, we looked at what happens when Jesus comes into our lives and into our homes. And we become his friends. He brings life. He brings health. He raises the dead. But who are his friends and how can we become them? If you have your Bibles, turn to John 15, 14. John 15, 14. And there we see how do we become one of Jesus' friends. Um, 
You are my friends if what? You do what I command you. You do. Proverbs 22.11 says, He that loveth pure, pureness of heart for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friends. So if we do what Jesus commands, when we do his sweet will, he abides with us still. We become his friends. Um, this afternoon, we will move on in our study. We'll be looking at the various passages and comparing them as, a, as we learn to um, study. You have uh, the handout. Anybody not have a handout? Let me just hand some to you to give to anybody that doesn't have one. Um, the reason why I think this will be easier than looking it up in your, in your Bible, because we'll have them there so you can see the similar passages side by side, I think you'll find that helpful. We want to learn to listen to the voice of God and see how that voice activation activates our lives and changes us. One more. You can have more. Notice Luke 7, 36. Verse 36 there. You see there at the top, you see the four books and then the verses underneath, and I've tried to line them up. Do you see that in your handout? We're going to look at Dr. Luke's description first. Verse 36 of Luke 7. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold... A woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Meditating on Scripture is like looking at one of those computer-generated pictures that looks like it's just dots and colors. Have you seen them? And then you look at it, and you look at it, and you stare at it, and you move it this way and that way, until finally uh, a three-dimensional picture emerges. Have you, have you seen one of those? Um, and that's how Scripture uh, is as we meditate on it. We've been meditating on stories from Bethany. And uh, just one small city out, outside of Jerusalem, the suburbs of Jerusalem. What Jesus did in this village impacted all of Jerusalem. This community served as a basis for Jesus in his bigger ministry that he had and a key home there. The story of Bethany is the story of two homes which opened their doors for Jesus. Martha learned her lesson, and the next time we see Martha, we saw this yesterday, she wasn't complaining about Jesus being present. She was longing for his presence, longing for him to be there. Her brother Lazarus had died. And during those days with Lazarus dead without Jesus, Mary and Martha represent those who know Jesus and are his friends, those who welcome him into their homes and into their hearts. Martha and Mary represent Seventh-day Adventists. They keep the Sabbath. They're longing for Jesus to come. They represent those who see the coming of Jesus as a solution to their problems, they represent those who often speak to each other and their desire of their desire to see Jesus. If only Jesus was here, this or that would not happen. That's Adventist. Though Lazarus had been dead for four days, it's never too late for Jesus to solve the problem. And Lazarus was resurrected to the amazement of the funeral mourners and the comfort of the sisters. And the resurrection of Lazarus is the context of our story this afternoon. Lazarus was raised in late January or early February of A.D. 31. Now, when did Jesus die? March or April of A.D. 31. So, this was perhaps 
one to two months before Jesus was resurrected. As you can imagine, even though there wasn't text messages, emails, um, radio and television, how long do you think it took to get the news out of the resurrection of Lazarus, dead four days? It spread like wildfire, far and wide, creating an immense interest in the Jews. But to really understand our story this afternoon, we need to understand the mindset of the Jews at that time. Now, as Christians, we take the resurrection for granted. But not so the Jews in the days of Christ. For them, the topic of the resurrection was one of immense debate. Who didn't believe in the resurrection? The Sadducees, according to Mark 22, 23, Mark 12, 18, Luke 20, 27. They were scientists, and they argued that it was impossible for there to be a resurrection. And here we can get some insight into the way that Satan works. Because the resurrection was a crucial part of the Messiah's message, what did Satan not want Jews to believe? That it was even possible. He wanted to create doubt before it ever happened. He sought to get some to disbelieve it and then argue against it. And Satan used stubborn doubters pretending to be scientific truth seekers to further his cause. Debates between the Pharisees were so heated and passionate that Paul was able to split the Sanhedrin by simply saying he was a Pharisee and he believed in the resurrection. And suddenly the Pharisees wanted to defend him and the Sadducees um, continued to attack him. And this is how Satan wins. Few people study for themselves. The rank and file of the Jews had listened to the various debates between the Pharisees and between the Sadducees, and they became confused. They wondered what death was like. They wondered if there was a resurrection, and the multitudes were not willing to take a stand on the subject because they were moderate. To talk about the resurrection then became controversial. And you mustn't touch controversial talks, subjects. We find that Jesus didn't argue about the subject. He simply presented the Bible and its declarations. But as Jesus said in a parable in Luke 16, 31, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though what? One rose from the dead. After this miracle of Lazarus raising, was there any question about a resurrection? Shouldn't be. Shouldn't have been. How could anyone be a Sadducee after this miracle? But did the Sadducees acknowledge their error and abandon their beliefs? No. They did not accept the Bible, and they wouldn't accept truth, though one rose from the dead. They wouldn't accept the Bible, and if you don't accept the Bible, you will not accept any other authority. Their beliefs were not based on a search for truth, but on pride of opinion. When you see the clearest Bible text, don't convince a person of the truth, nothing will. The Bible is the test for pride of opinion. When you see a scholar reject the Bible as an authority, when you see a lowering of the authority of the Bible, you can know that that person bases their views not on a search for truth, but on pride of opinion. Don't pay any attention at all to what that person says or believes because they're not honest. They're not committed to truth wherever it may lead, and thus they cannot be safe guides. They're blind leading the blind. Only the blind will follow a blind guide. Furthermore, any truth they do hold 
is purely happenstance. I want you to listen to this. People who have pride of opinion may hold some truth, but it's just happenstance. Maybe they grew up in it, cultural. Because they can't be persuaded by any evidence, they will reject evidence, evade evidence, destroy evidence, work against any evidence. Now, I have people give me calls from time to time. I got one just a week or so ago. And this person was a retired pastor, a very good man, and he wanted to present a new view of Revelation 17. And there are several key things that I always listen to when somebody's going to present a new view, because we, we want the truth, we want to be open. But if I'm always listening, if somebody has some new view about the trumpets, I want to know where did they stand on great controversy and its statement on the trumpets? And if they begin by explaining away that statement, then I know, to the law and to the testimony, they don't have light here. And so when I was listening to this view, guess what I was listening to? Is this individual going to start explaining away key text of the Bible or key statements by the spirit of prophecy? That way I can know if they're open to the correction and instruction from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Does that make sense? Christ's resurrection of Lazarus, instead of making the Sadducees happy to finally find the truth, made the Pharisees furious at Jesus. In Christ's day, without internet... Without email, there was no trouble for God to get this message of Lazarus' resurrection out viral. It was viral before there was viral. Over the next couple of months, this event spread, creating a huge sensation. It was an atomic bomb that Jesus dropped to prepare society for his own resurrection. You see how that happens? He's working ahead of time. He's looking at all these things. And God is wise in his timing of events. About two, one to two months after this miracle at Bethany, this resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus returned to Bethany. This visit, however, was different from any prior visits. Before, he had gone privately, secretly, slipped in, slipped out, but at this time, he came to Jerusalem in a very public manner. He was open. He encouraged publicity. He traveled with the crowds on their way to the Passover at Jerusalem. Leaving the wilderness of Ephraim on the other side of the Jordan, where he lived in relative seclusion and safety, he first went to Jericho, and the city of Jericho is 15 miles, 24 kilometers from Jerusalem. That's about an eight-and-a-half-hour journey by foot if you have one stop for eating. An equivalent trip today would be to start in your car from Gla and travel to St. Louis, Missouri. I just looked it up on uh, Google this last week. Now... At 825 feet below sea level, Jericho is the lowest city in the world. And it gives a, has a very pleasant climate because of this. Now, to go from Jericho to Jerusalem, you have to climb. And it is not only dry, arid, and hot, it's dangerous as it goes through a wild region inhabited by outlaws. It was on this road that the story of the Good Samaritan took place. Today, 2,000 years later, that road between Jericho and Jerusalem still is dangerous. I happened to have traveled that road years ago, and while we were driving up the road, we passed by a bus that had been bombed from some rebel that had been hidden in the caves and area. 
Yeah. Yes, very dangerous. Thank you for that. So, at the time of the Passover, the city of Jerusalem would swell to over 2 million guests, and it was announced that Jesus was to spend the Sabbath in Bethany before the Passover. He had been invited to a feast, and all Jerusalem was interested in who was going to be the guests at this feast. Yesterday, we looked at John 11. We'll take up the story in John 12. You have it there in your handout. See, after Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the final column, we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now, do you see God's overall plan here? Just before Jesus' resurrection, what were the Jews talking about? The resurrection. Just before his resurrection, who were they talking about? The one who had been resurrected. Um, Verse 9 of John 12, do you see it there? Now a great many of the Jews knew that he, that is Jesus, was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but what? Do you have it there? Make sure. Verse 9. Hmm. Huh. Oh, it's on the back. Thank you. Where? Yes. John 12, 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not just to see Lazarus only, uh, Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Satan's plan in denying the resurrection had been defeated. They had somebody that was resurrected, Lazarus. Flesh and blood, they could see it. The arguments against the resurrection had now boomeranged against Satan because now it had created a special interest in the topic. See how that works? Satan can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. God will arouse his people when other means fail. Heresies will come into the church, volume 5, page 707. God knows how to arouse us. In his own time and way, God will overrule the heresies that come into the church to firmly, more firmly establish truth. Right now, the heresy of, uh, of uh, anti-Trinitarianism. Who knows why it's uh, coming, but God has a plan to more firmly establish the importance of the Holy Spirit, the importance of Jesus, and the importance of God the Father. And people were intensely curious about Lazarus. Have you ever talked to somebody who had been dead? Well, if you are talking to dead people, (laughs) don't talk to me. (laughs) Dead four days? Many Jews wondered what death was like. Today we have all heard the reports of the near-death experiences. It's interesting that people were trying to turn, that our people today are trying to turn near-death experiences into after-death experiences. But there was no such account of a near-death experience for Lazarus. That was a death experience, four days. Talking to Lazarus was a chance to talk to somebody who had been dead a long time, and the Jews wanted to know what was it like. They all wondered, what had he seen? Did he hate to leave heaven with his spirit to come back into his body? God had arranged to give Lazarus an important testimony just before Jesus' death and resurrection. And what did Lazarus tell them? He could repeat that he knew by experience that God's word was true. The dead know not anything. The living know they will die, but the dead know not anything. I didn't know anything while I was dead. It was just like being asleep was all he could tell. The first thing I heard was the voice of Jesus calling me to get up, and I did. Dying was hard. Death 
was easy. He could say on his resurrection, so he got up, death, where's your sting? Grave was your victory. Is this all there was to death? No big deal here. Now that we have the context, let's go back to verse 2 of John 12. As usual, who was serving? Martha. Is she complaining? No. She's serving and happy to do it. Moving forward, we come to verse 3 and we see Mary. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrance of the oil. Where is Mary? At the feet of Jesus. Where he's, we saw her in our first study. Some people always seem to be in trouble. Do you know any, anyone like that? No matter where they appear, suddenly they get into trouble. No matter what they do, people understand. No matter what they do, people complain. And that was Mary. Each time we see her, she's in trouble. In her early years, when she'd been apart from Jesus and she'd lived a life of sin, she was despised. But even when she was with Jesus, she is despised. Even when she sat at Jesus' feet, she got in trouble. Don't think that if, you are, if Jesus is in your home and you're at his feet, you will escape trouble. It's not going to happen. It, don't think that just because you're sitting at Jesus' feet, you're going to escape people criticizing what you do. Don't think that you can sit at Jesus' feet and escape turmoil. Don't think you can escape misunderstanding and opposition by sitting... <clears throat> at the feet of Jesus, that actually invites attack. Now, why did Mary always seem to be misunderstood? Notice Luke 7.37 there over on Luke. I think I have it, uh, verse 37, yes. Behold, a woman in the city who was a, a sinner. This tells us one reason why Mary was suspect in everything she did. A lawbreaker who's known by the police is often a suspect in, in crimes they didn't commit. Why? Because they've committed other crimes. And the word sinner has a certain sneer to it, a contempt. The root is a work, word that means to miss the mark. The Jews didn't use this word to describe the, the person who had committed a misdeed. The Jews used it for those that were social outcasts. They didn't use that word to describe the sins that were socially acceptable. It was the, use, the word used for habitual, chronic, determined sin, moral sin, alcohol addictions. It was not a compliment. It was the greatest insult you could give. Perhaps there would be one greater. You were a sinner and a publican. Yeah, that would be the only thing that would be a little lower than the sinner. Uh, Mary had been brought up in a Jewish home but became a young lady of wild parties and easy morals who was sowing wild oats only to reap loneliness, disappointment, and heartache. I wish I knew the whole story. Someday she'll tell us all about it. Um, today we only have little glimpses. Desire of Ages links her to Mary Magdalene and... Um, also to um, the woman who was uh, seven devils had been cast out of those two experiences. Now, how did Mary live in Magdala when we see her living with her sister in Bethany? We don't know actually much about Magdala. Matthew 15, 39 tells us it is a coastal city on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. Mark 8, 10 calls the same area Dalmanutha. Did Jesus find and rescue her after the feeding of the 4,000 told about in these passages? Mary um, appears to be the woman taken in adultery spoken of in John 8. Desire of Ages tells us that the woman taken in adultery became one of his most steadfast followers with self-sacrificing love and devotion. She repaid his forgiving his forgiving. Uh, Mercy. 
Desire of Ages 462. Now let me just ask you a question. Why do you think that God covers the past of Mary? And we look back today at Mary as an honored saint of the Lord. Why do you think that God doesn't tell all the details in, in, uh, in the Bible about Mary's past? We all are. And what does he do when he forgives us? He pushes all of our sins into the depths of the sea and the gospel writers respected Mary and out of their respect for Mary, they didn't attach her name to the stories that were so important. Jesus is like that. He's not going to take your sins and publicize them to the world. Now, journalists do. Um, we used to call them journalists, um, but really the Bible just calls them gossips. You know, there are gossips on the internet that love to expose the sins of Seventh-day Adventist people. Some of this is done by Seventh-day Adventist writers. But dear folk, that is not the Bible model. The Bible model is to cover a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And Jesus is not going to come and whisper in your ears all the sins that I've committed. You don't have the time, and he doesn't do it anyway. And he's not going to whisper in my ears your sins. And aren't you glad? God has all the information about you, and he has all that information about me. But as we see in the story of Mary, he's trying to help us. And so he doesn't hurt our influence. He seeks to restore us, reinstate us. What a God. We know that Mary listened to his teaching. She watched him heal the sick. She watched while poor people were helped. She saw that he didn't uh, charge for his services. Now, if you come to my office, you'll have to sign insurance and do all those things. When you, and I don't do much to help a person. I don't heal you. Um, but when you went to Jesus, he actually healed you and you didn't have to fill out insurance papers. What a difference. What a, what a physician. He didn't ask for insurance cards. He didn't send them to buy expensive medications. He just healed them. She had never heard or seen anyone like Jesus. He prayed with her. He prayed for her. He wept when she would fall. And he gave her scripture study to guide her. The respectable religious Jews condemned Jesus for being surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. Matthew and Zacchaeus became loyal disciples from the tax collectors. Mary became a loyal disciple from the sinner class. Religious people are often harder for God to save than the open sinner. The one who's drinking and partying and sleeping around knows he's doing wrong. But the religious person often can't see his contempt in pride. As she spent time with Christ, Mary's heart had been, under, had been bitter and hard from hurt, but it became strangely softened. Notice Luke 8.1. I believe, do we have Luke 8.1 there? Um, don't see it. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. This isn't a fairy tale where people lived happily ever after. Her life began as a mess. She was rescued from moral impurity. And no, she didn't become perfect in a moment. She made resolutions and broke them. She was ashamed of herself and afraid Jesus would see her. She wouldn't go to him, but he came to her again and again. 
He encouraged her to begin anew. He didn't give up on her when she gave up on herself. Each time she was determined to do right, and for a time she would, but. Then the old impulses, old desires, old thoughts would return, and she would slip back into her old habits. One day, she was fooled by an entrapment scheme that worked, and she was taken in her surprise and terror and dragged to Jesus. Jesus was the last person she wanted to see. She had let him down, not once, but again. She couldn't bear to face him. She condemned herself, and she knew he condemned her. But it was the best place to be. No matter what our sin, when we have sinned, the best thing that could have happened to her is to be dragged to Jesus. Dear folk, think of it. The priests who hated Jesus took somebody to Jesus. And they took her so that he would condemn her and they could condemn him. But when you take somebody to Jesus, you take somebody to their healer. They said to Jesus, they they, uh, she didn't know that they were bringing her right to the solution for her problems. Her captors forgot that. They just wanted to embarrass her. They said, say, Jesus, we found this person who's a well-known follower of yours. She was committing adultery. Now, Moses in the law said that we needed to stone such people. What do you say? What should we do? to this follower of yours. As Mary heard those words, she knew Jesus' hatred of sin. She knew his desire for purity. And I imagine that her mouth went dry and she cringed and shame burned hot crimson on her face. You just see it. And then she seemed to hear the death knell from Jesus himself when he said, He that is without sin among you, throw the first stone. I picture her cowering, waiting for the deserved stones to strike her. Many times people are afraid to read the Bible, God's very word, because they feel like Mary felt when she was in the presence of Jesus listening to his words, she thought he was condemning her. The words would be her death knell. There are people that won't read child guidance because somehow they think it condemns them. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? This is Jesus. This is taking you into the presence of Jesus. He's not condemning you. He's trying to help you, giving you information to help us. They feel like it is a death knell instead of their emancipation proclamation to the freedom it declares. As for her tormentors, the people who had captured her, the people who had set her up for this, she thought they were getting stones to throw at her. Finally, she looked around and heard the voice of Jesus saying, where are your accusers? And then she looked at him as if he was the accuser. He says, no, I'm not your accuser. Go and sin no more. And apparently that was the seventh time that Jesus prayed for the demons that tortured her. She knelt down at his feet, weeping, and she became the most faithful follower of Jesus. She never, ever returned to the life of immorality again. This was it. Others had exploited her, but only Jesus cared for her. She could say, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. Just as there are male Marthas, there are injured and scarred male Marys. Dr. Charles F. Weigel was an evangelist who came home from an evangelistic crusade to find a note stating that his wife had left him and did not want to remain married to an evangelist. It was a difficult situation. Over the next months, even thoughts of suicide entered his mind. But over the next several years, he found that Christ was better even than a wife. And sitting down to the piano, expressed the gratitude of his heart with the words, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. All my life was full of sin and 
when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me, and he led me in the way I ought to go. Every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his word of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me till someday I see his blessed face above. That was Mary's testimony. And that's my testimony too. Uh, no wonder when Jesus came to Bethany, Mary sat at his feet. Nothing could remove her. She'd been forgiven much. She loved much. She began to wonder, what can I do for Jesus? She had heard that he was going to die, and she decided to purchase the best of perfumes to anoint him, his body. She didn't want it said of Christ's body what her sister had to say of Lazarus, he stinketh. The word spikenard has two words. Spike, which means the pure essence, and nard, which means the head. It came from the head of a valerianus plant called nard, which grows only in the Himalayan mountains of Nepal, China, and India. This had to be transported about 1,500 miles by camel train. As you can imagine, the pure essence of nard was very expensive. It cost an average year's wage in the days of Christ. It's still expensive. I looked up on Amazon this last week, and a pound of nard is $624.08. It was a sacrificial purchase, but nothing could be too good for Christ's burial. She'd been pardoned, and she must express her gratitude. With the public coming of Christ to Bethany, however, the crowds were saying that Christ was to be crowned king. And so that afternoon, she took the alabaster box that held the pound of spikenard. Now, the alabaster box was more like a pitcher. Alabaster is marble. It was sealed. A handmade alabaster box today cost about $300 on eBay this last week. Thus, an equivalent purchase today would be a little over $900. Mary broke the seal on that pitcher, and there she washed his tired feet with his disointment. She wiped off the excess with her long hair. This act of Mary's, this act of love, had been foretold. Song of Solomon 1.12, While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. All the stories of the Bible have a symbolism. They are types. In story, parable, and prophecy, the same symbols could be applied. A woman in the Bible represents the church. What does a pure woman represent? True church, God's people. What does a harlot represent? An apostate church, corrupt church. Which church did Mary represent? God would teach us that the difference between the pure woman of Revelation 12 and the harlot of Revelation 17 is not what they have done. They are both sinners in the Jewish understanding of the term. But one is a sinner pardoned and cleansed. One has been washed, the other has not been. One has taken the medicine of the gospel, the other has refused it. Jesus said of Babylon, we would have healed her, but she would not be healed. Mary had been a sinner, but she was a sinner pardoned. And Ellen White says that Mary represents the true church. You see, the true church there in Revelation 12 is clothed with stuff that's the sun. That's outside of this world. The world can't give you the sun. She has stars in her crown. The world can't give you stars. This is all out of the world. And her foundation is out of this world on the moon. Luke seven forty seven. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Her sins had been many, but they had been forgiven. Dear folk, I am so glad that Mary is a representative of what the church is composed of. Sinners, 
pardoned by the blood of Jesus. Aren't you glad? Her righteousness didn't come from within herself. It came from him like the prayer of the publican. She said, God, be merciful to be me a sinner. And Mary was giving all that she had in this gift. Just like Jesus was the expensive gift from heaven, Mary gave an expensive gift to Jesus. Jesus understood the gift. He had made the same sacrifice. He understood the thought. He loved the gift. The sweet smell of Mary's love cheered his heart. Her act of devotion gave him happiness. It was for Mary's that Jesus came to this earth. He came to rescue sinners. Do you know what kind of patient gives me great joy? It's not the patient that comes into my office and I find nothing wrong with on the skin. And they leave and they're happy they've seen a a dermatologist, but they're not really grateful. My grateful patients are the ones that I have found Merkel cell cancer, taking it out before it spread and they're still alive. Melanomas, taking it out early and they're still alive. They come back and they say, that's the doctor that saved my life. And that's the kind of patient Jesus loves to see. It's the one he saves their life. They come to him and he points out dangerous, damaging, terrible things that will destroy them. And then he removes them. And they're forever grateful. The physician repeats the stories of his sickest patient The sicker the patient, the happier the physician is when they get better. Christ Object Lessons, page 148. Angels are watching with intense interest. Angels are watching with intense interest to see how man is dealing with his fellow men. When they see one manifest Christ-like sympathy for the erring, they press to his side and bring to his remembrance words to speak that will be as the bread of life to the soul. The story of Mary reveals that the heart of Revelation 17 is not a greater sinner than the pure woman of Revelation 12. Both women committed great sin. One is pardoned, one is not. One is repentant, one is not. One is grateful, one is not. One gives everything she has to Christ who has given everything he has to her. The other begrudges gifts to God and tries to get all the gifts to himself. God clothes one with his perfect garments. The other is left in the shame of her nakedness. Psalm 32, 2, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Do you want to know the story, the details of the pure woman of Revelation 12? Read the story of Mary. Read the story of Hosea's wife. Matthew 1, in recounting the Um, ancestors of Christ mentions four women. Tamar, who played the harlot. Rahab, who was a harlot. Bathsheba, the adulterer. All these are listed in God's hall of fame. Have, Have you discovered you are a sinner? Jesus came for you. Have you accepted his forgiveness? Are you filled with gratitude for his love to you? Have you given him your most valuable treasure? Can you understand Mary's love? Desire of Ages 564. That ointment was a symbol of the heart of the giver. Dear folk, each one of us can give an alabaster box treasure and break it for Jesus today. We don't have to see Mary as something doing something that we can't do. Let me read this again. That ointment was a symbol of the heart of the giver. It's a symbol of your heart. But if it's never been broken and spilled out for Jesus, then it's not Jesus, uh, Mary's gift. Jesus on the cross His heart was broken, spilled out. Has your heart been broken and spilled out? 
in the silence of this Bible study time has Jesus given something for you? Has he done something for you? What have you done to show your gratitude? Have you given what is valuable to you to him? Is there anything in your life that's too valuable to give to him? Would you like Mary take your most treasured possessions saved and then in saving spend for Jesus? Denying yourself the love to Jesus as he has denied himself the love to you. Would you just like to say, Lord, I want to give everything that I have and am. I want my heart to be yours. I want you to take it. You're going to have to keep it pure for me. I can't keep it pure for thee. And if that's your commitment again, would you just raise your hand? Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look at one of the key stories of the gospel. It shows what your word does for undeserving people. And how undeserving people can bring happiness to your heart. Be your friends. Touch us with your love that we can love others. May we be touched by the gentleness of Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And may he change us inside out, upside down, right side up. We just commit our lives to you. May we be your missionaries right here on this campground. To each person we see, each person we talk to. Bring an outpouring of your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.